1: You're listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Whites. Let's talk about America, shall we? I mean, yesterday was Columbus Day, after all, so I think we need to discuss the whole concept of America. America is the land of innovation and invention and of reinvention. You immigrate from somewhere else, you reinvent yourself, you invent new stuff, you prosper, you repeat. That's what we do. That's why everybody wants to come here, so you can reinvent yourself and then invent new stuff and then make money and then bring over your other relatives and everybody does the same thing. It's where our ancestors came to it's where people today still come to to seek refuge from oppressive regimes or extreme poverty or genocide or maybe just to get away from their mothers who knows I mean it's a place where a poor Jew born in 1888 in Russia named Israel Isidore Bylin could transform himself into Irving Berlin and write the greatest Christmas song of all time where else could you do that Or a poor kid from the Bronx, also Jewish, by the way, named Ralph Lifshitz, could reinvent the mythological idea of American wasp fashion and create the fantasy world of Ralph Lauren. Where else could you do that? Or where we could take a hundred old world cuisines and food cultures and distill them and distort them and industrialize them and create the modern American mall food court. I mean, that's what we do here. Even though we put everything through the America machine and we democratize and simplify and all too often sanitize and kill off what made all that interesting immigrant stuff so great to begin with, it's still getting a lot more multicultural around here lately, this century. We, we seem to have sort of gone almost to the brink, but then we've pulled back. I mean, especially here in New York where... We're getting more diverse by the day, it seems. It's amazing. Except, of course, in Manhattan, where the new diversity is made up of Russian oligarchs and Chinese billionaires buying luxury penthouses and hedge fund jerks buying up historic townhouses. But that's Manhattan. That's not New York anymore. Out in the real New York, the boroughs and the inner suburbs where it's all happening, America, I must say, is getting less white, less European in origin, and more interesting, I think, especially when it comes to food. Of course... My perspective is that of a native New Yorker, basically a native New Yorker. So I've always been surrounded by diversity to some extreme, even in my very white, very waspy and Jewish Long Island suburb neighborhood, childhood. We lived right near a state university campus, SUNY Stony Brook, and it was a big engineering school and medical school, and it was filled with engineering and medical graduate students from India and Asia when I was a kid. I'm sure it still is, but I think that was a relatively new thing back then. And there was this program that the university had in conjunction with the townsfolk, folk, us, where families would take on students as their host. They didn't really live with us, but, they, but we were sort of their host family, and they would eat with us and hang out with us. And Of course, we did it. My good liberal parents, we did it. And so in the early 70s, this was going on, and I was a Brownie, and my mom was the Brownie troop leader. And the Brownies and the Girl Scouts used to, every year, do something called International Night or International Day. Sometimes it was during the day, where each troop would choose a country or a culture to represent, and then they would make costumes and food and crafts and put on their little display table, and everybody then would walk around and visit all the different countries. And so my brownie troop chose India as our country to represent for international night. One year in the early mid-70s. And our Indian guest student guy had got really excited about this. He was so flattered and honored that we had chosen India that he had his mom ship from India boxes filled with yards and yards of fabric to make all the little brownies saris to wear and all sorts of decorative objects and jewelry and bangles and ingredients and spices from India for our display table and for us to make our food samples that we would be handing out so that we would be super authentic. And we were super authentic and we should have won if it had been a competition, which of course it wasn't because it was a Brownie and Girl Scout event and not a sports event. Brownies and Girl Scouts are not competitive. They're collaborative. But it should have been a sports event. But I still think we should have won. And since I never played any sports, I think that's a part of me that went unfilled, unfulfilled. And that's probably why now I have to do the most push ups of anybody in a boot camp class, you know, to fill that void in myself, the competitive void. But anyway, we are really getting more diverse all over the country, and that's totally fine with me because it means you can find better food no matter where you go in the U.S. All you have to do is seek out these small enclaves because now when you travel in the U.S., it's almost guaranteed you can get yourself a good bowl of pho or some good Indian food or even just some good soft tacos just about anywhere if you really look around. And if you really look around and you really do your research, things can get even more interesting you can find some really good stuff out there which is okay by me i'll take it because there are also places in the u.s where you can still only find like taco bell and fridays and that's horrendous and ashonda as my grandparents would have said who were immigrants but of course on the other side of all of this in our bipolar weird world of america As all of this is happening and we become more and more diverse and we have all kinds of new and interesting food coming into the country and we become less and less of the sort of Eurocentric white America that we used to be, as this is all happening, Foodiness Inc. is still trying to sell us on their industrialized, sanitized, packaged, and processed American dream nightmare. Their version of the American dream, which is truly nightmare and sadly many immigrant families who come here very quickly abandon their traditional cuisines and jump right onto the giant walmart shopping cart bandwagon which is filled with pringles and gatorade and squeezy yogurt and chocolate checks because they can and then a couple years after arriving oh suddenly their kids are fat and diabetic and everybody wonders why I see it every time I go to Costco, along with the 10-pound bags of rice and the 5-pound bags of lentils and the crates of apples. The carts are filled with industrial-sized boxes of cereal and juice boxes and rainbow-colored goldfish crackers and chicken nuggets shaped like dinosaurs. I mean, I get it. You're in America. Food is cheap. Advertising is seductive. You want to give your kids what you never had. But seriously, it scares the shit out of me because it's a really bad trajectory And it can't end well. I mean, these are the kids who will be running the show in a couple of decades, the doctors and the lawmakers and architects of the future American society. How are they going to do that if their brains have been formed on a steady diet of Gatorade and Lunchables? Did the greatest minds in history eat nuggets and tater tots and mac and cheese from a package every day for lunch? Did Einstein and Edison and Eleanor Roosevelt start their mornings with a big bowl of pink rainbow unicorn cereal or a s'mores pop tart? I don't think so. Would Shakespeare have written so many books if he'd been fueled on milk and cereal flavored candy bars in the morning? Um, no. Oh, we're going to take a short break right here, and then we'll come right back. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides. So what I remember most vividly about the Indian foods and spices and fabrics that arrived in that big box from India way back when was how everything smelled. When the boxes were opened up the smell that wafted out it was spicy and fragrant and a little bit musty a little dirty not in a like filthy way like dirt like soil it smelled exotic it smelled like something that had come from far away the fabrics had picked up the smells of the spices and when we wore the fabrics in our little saris the air around us was scented with cumin and turmeric and curry spices and We fried up little poppadums and we made some kind of chutney or something to serve. I can't even remember what it was that we actually served other than the poppadums because I probably ate quite a few of them. It was such a long time ago. I can't quite remember the specifics, but what I do remember are the smells. And that's what makes total sense since smell is our oldest and our most powerful sense. I mean, we were smelling before we were humans when we were just little amoebas floating around in a vast sea we could still smell we can smell before we're born we can smell in utero before we even have a nose we can smell Do you know that sperm can even smell their way to the ripest egg they smell it out they pick that egg based on smell well actually that's not true there's only that one egg but they smell their way toward it that's amazing they can smell And did you know, this is amazing, this is like the most incredible thing I have learned in the past 40 years, that our bodies have scent receptors all over them, and not just in our noses. Did you know that? Because smell is all about these receptors. It's sort of a lock and key thing inside your nose and up in the back of your mouth. You have these receptors, and then the scent molecules are like little keys that fit in the locks, and that's how you perceive smell, but it's not just up there in your nose. We have them all over ourselves. This was in today's New York Times science section, which I read religiously. And the research is showing that these scent receptors are there to promote healing of your body. Like if your skin is damaged, if the tissue is damaged, but the receptors smell sandalwood, which coincidentally is used in Ayurvedic medicine from India and is one of the world's oldest systems of medicine. The sandalwood smell promotes the skin to heal faster. How insane is that? And the prostate gland can smell violets and roses. And those smells seem to prevent the cells of the prostate from becoming cancerous. How the violets and the roses got anywhere near the prostate? I don't really want to discuss. But seriously, I'm not making this shit up. It was in the New York Times. So it's got to be real and it's got to be accurate. It's the paper of record. So a few years ago, no, not a few years ago, a few years after the India Fest at International Night, my new Girl Scout troop when I was a junior, because from Brownies you go to juniors, different leader, not my mom anymore, Mrs. Niebuhr, my new troop participated again in International Night. But this time we represented Korea, well, south korea because obviously we weren't going to choose north korea especially because this was only 20 years after the korean war slash conflict i mean we didn't know anything about north korea really but south korea hmm, yeah so we represented south korea and as i was a few years older by then i remember this one more clearly we all wore purple and green satin hanbok which are like kimonos but korean and shorter you wear them with a skirt We all wore those. And we made chop che, which is a stir-fried noodle dish, sort of like Korean lo mein. But the noodles are um, made out of mung bean threads, so they're stretchy and kind of clear. And I still, the most vivid recollection from the night is about the smell. What do I remember most from the night? The smell of the wok that we cooked the chop che in. We must have borrowed it from somebody because, I mean, who had a wok back? Well, we had a wok. Maybe it was our wok. But I remember the way that the wok itself smelled of blackened cast iron and cooking oil and garlic, that smell, and the smell of the black liquid eyeliner that the troop leader, again, not my mother, used to embarrassingly try to make us all look Asian. I know, it makes me cringe to even think about it now. But I was totally into it then because I had just recently seen the Mikado and I wanted to wear the same makeup as the geishas in the Mikado. And Mrs. Niebuhr took liquid eyeliner and she drew little slanted sort of eyes on all of us so we would look like little Asian kids, which I can't even believe we did. But it was the 70s, so we can't be blamed. I shudder about it now, but this was, you know, pre-political correctness and nobody gave a shit. And nobody cared either that the brownies representing India a few years before almost exclusively were blonde and blue-eyed. Except for myself and my sister, who looked more like the lost tribe of Jews who had taken a wrong turn at Afghanistan and wound up somewhere down in Delhi. So what about smell? What about it? I haven't talked about smell that much on the show. It's so primal and so intrinsic and so utterly fundamental to our existence and our being and our survival. I mean, if you can't smell, you're not going to live very long on this planet. Did you know, this is amazing, that if you put a newborn baby right on its mother's belly immediately after it's born, within minutes of birth, it will actually pull itself up toward her breast because it can smell her milk. Yeah smell her milk, which makes sense because if you were giving birth like somewhere out in the fields and you were all alone and maybe you were unconscious or something happened to you, the baby could still find its way to you to feed and survive. We're so soft now. Smell was how we navigated the world before our other senses developed, when we were simpler creatures swimming in the dark primordial sea and later on land, before we developed things like these amazing eyes and ears that we have. It's smell that you can always trust because, you know, your eyes can trick you and, and fool you and your hearing can be deceptive sometimes but your nose, well, you know, Toucan Sam, he was right. It always knows. So what happened? I mean, wouldn't you think we'd all be driven still by smells toward those things that created us? Wouldn't we just have this primal scent motivation taking us back to what created us, the first foods from our mother's bodies and then our first bowls, if your first mouthful of post-amniotic fluid, the first breast milk you drank, the first thing you drank outside of the womb was breast milk, and it was infused with cumin and turmeric or epizote and chilies or garlic and kimchi or, you know, even here, potatoes and grass-fed beef, (laughs) wouldn't you spend the rest of your life chasing that? Wouldn't you want to get back to the garden? so to speak, wouldn't that be the thing you would crave forever after? Don't they say that men are try- constantly trying to get back into the womb anyway? Well, I guess only if you were breastfed, because then you would have tasted those things early on enough that they would have imprinted on your brain. You know what I always say, of course, that about breastfeeding, that baby formula is the foodiness gateway drug. I always say that. If your first post-amniotic swallow is from a bottle filled with a mix of industrial soy milk powder, sugar, and synthetic vitamins, I'm not so sure that you're going to have that animalistic, primal, Proustian response to the smell of it. I mean, what does baby formula smell like anyway? I've never smelled it. I don't have kids. I've never nursed, but I've also never dealt with formula. What does it smell like? In my mind, it smells like carnation instant breakfast or like powdered milk. Another early foodiness product, Carnation Instant Breakfast, that promised to replace actual annoying messy food with a quick and easy packet. Instant breakfast. Open the packet. Mix it with water. Drink it down. Instant breakfast. There you go. Now you don't even have to open the packet. Now they sell it in cans. And you can just take it with you. What is it? It's baby formula for adults. It's powdered milk and sugar and synthetic vitamins and thickeners. It's the same shit. They even featured Carnation Instant Breakfast on Mad Men last season because SCDP was trying to win the Carnation account and they served it at the meeting that they had with the Carnation bigwigs and they all had to sit there and happily drink their instant breakfast and talk about what a miracle it was. And even if you were breastfed, why did your mommy while she was pregnant? Because kids develop a taste for foods before they're even born. They can taste what the mom eats. And if the mom's eating Wendy's and frozen taquitos, well, then I don't know what to tell you. I wasn't breastfed, unfortunately. I am of the generation of kids born in the 50s and 60s whose moms were encouraged to use formula, who were told outright in the hospital by their doctors not to nurse their babies, told that science and technology, the foundations of foodiness, had provided a superior product to their own breast. Milk, Their own feeble breast milk was not enough. Science was going to step in. Just because humans had been nursing from their mothers like other mammals since the beginning of time, let this powder come instead. My mom was told not to breastfeed for all of those reasons and also because she only had one kidney. As if that was going to make a difference? It wasn't like she was feeding me pee. So what did a missing kidney have to do with anything I don't think that would have affected her milk production just saying all right we're gonna take another short break we'll wrap it up when we come back
0: Hey, my name's Edward Lee, and I'm the chef at 610 Magnolia in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm listening to Heritage Radio Network.org.
1: Okay, welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, eating food and smelling food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, your host, Erica Wise. Remember that if you are a fan of Let's Get Real, you should follow me on Twitter, I I don't tweet that much, but when I do, it's pretty interesting. Even Jack Insley now follows me on Twitter as of today. <laughs> After how many years? You finally convinced me. Oh, thanks. The tweets got that good. Really? Which one was it? I, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jack. I don't, I don't use Twitter. That I often. know who does. Well, apparently everybody, except apparently. me and you. Yeah. Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter. You can also read my Huffington Post column, which is not weekly, but is more like week and a halfly. And last week I mentioned that I was writing for Nutrisystem for Numi, but um, I put the Kenahura on that by telling you that last week. And this week they said they're not going to use me anymore. So, oh, well, they weren't that interesting, really. Anyway, so there you go. But find the show on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. You can also find us on Facebook. And people send me really nice, interesting, funny things on Facebook. And then if you follow us on Facebook, you can read those same really nice, funny, interesting things, too. See, you can be in the clubhouse with us. Okay, so when you walk into a warehouse store or, you know, like a Costco or a supermarket, what do you smell when you first walk in there? What does it smell like? Does it smell like a place filled with food, like an open-air market in rome or istanbul or hanoi or like a spice store or a salumi store or a cheese store or even like a fruit and vegetable store does it smell like food do you smell anything edible other than the rotisserie chicken smell which they pipe through the store because that's actually maybe the only real food but forget the rotisserie chicken other than that do you smell anything No, nothing smells like food in our food stores, mostly because they're not selling food in our food stores. The food stores smell like air conditioning and floor buffer wax and freezer case air and a hundred different chemical cleaning products and DVD rental machines and clearance lawn chairs. But not food. There's no food smell in our food. If the places that are purportedly selling us food don't smell like food, then how do we know that we're buying food? And how do we know that the food we're buying really is food? Well, we don't because how do we trust our senses, especially our most primal one? Well, we don't. That's the foodiness scam to trick you into buying processed and packaged while telling you it's real and whole and better because if the smell is gone, then the possibility of decay and rot and putrefaction is gone. And that's what our noses are really for, to tell us if our food is ripe and delicious or old and dangerously rotting or poisonous or moldy. So if we eliminate the smells, we eliminate obsolescence and we can live forever and ever in an air-conditioned, sanitized, shiny, bright world of dino nuggets and cotton candy flavored Oreo coffee creamers because that's what the industry wants us to buy. They don't want you to buy real food that rots and is perishable and needs to be kept fresh and might actually be good for you. They want you to buy their processed crap that sits on a shelf for decades that we'll have to eat when we're all down in the fallout shelter when the end comes, because, you know, the end is near. Now, I would like to do a scientific study. I think I'm going to do this. A scientific study where I send people shopping in today's supermarkets and warehouse stores blindfolded okay i'm gonna blindfold them send them out to go shopping and then see how they navigate and shop based solely on smell i mean i guess that's how blind people shop right i mean they're blind i never really thought about that until kind of right now today when i was writing the show blind people must need someone to go with them to read all the packages and the boxes because they can't just trust their sense of smell when they shop because there's no smell in the shopping so they need someone to come with them to read the package so they don't accidentally buy the pumpkin spice-flavored carpet shampoo instead of the pumpkin spice-flavored low-fat cream cheese spread, right? I wonder if they have service dogs who are trained to read the labels on the packages for them. I mean, a dog's nose is a thousand times more sensitive than our noses, but I doubt that even a bloodhound could sniff out any real food in a Walmart supercenter. Then... I would take the blindfolded people to a farmer's market on a warm August afternoon. And I'd let them wander around that farmer's market, following their noses, smelling the ripe peaches and the bunches of basil and the carrots with the dirt still clinging to them. And then I'd take them to the live animal butcher near my Costco store to smell the chicken blood and the goat poop. Okay, maybe not there. Because that, that, I mean, that they might throw up. That might be too much for some people. Even I get like the heaves when I walk by that place. But What would happen? What would happen? Would people suddenly revert back to their basic human selves? Would their nose like suddenly kick in? Would they go mad from the smell of an oozing ripe nectarine and a just-caught flounder laying on crushed ice in the sun? Would it drive them to insanity? Or would they freak out because the smells were so unnatural, as ridiculous as that sounds? Have we gone that far down the foodiness rabbit hole? I certainly hope not. But every time I set foot in a stop and shop or a ShopRite or an A&P or a Publix or a Pathmark or a Walmart or any of those stores and I don't smell any food, I seriously have my fears and my doubts. So I think I'm actually going to apply for research money for this project from that university in my hometown. I'm going to ask them to give me a grant. I mean after we hosted all those nerdy engineering PhD guys back then, all those guys from China and India, and we had them in our house and we served them all those American dinners and we took them on picnics and fishing trips and had them over for Thanksgiving. And they joined us for all of that. You'd think we could get a little something back, right? I mean, this is America, you know, it's all about give and take. So I think that's what I'm going to do. And I'll let you know what happens. You'll get updates on the research as it pours in. So that's all the time we have for today on Let's Get Real. Thanks to Jack in the control room, who's back from Louisville. Thanks to Ben Kaplan for writing my theme song. This is episode 111 of Let's Get Real, believe it or not. And the fun just keeps on going. 211 if you're really counting. Well, right. 211 if if you count Why We Cook, my original show, which I feel like Let's Get Real is starting to kind of become again. In a way. Sort of reverting back to that. Anyway, that's okay. Everything comes full circle. Like I said in The Lion King, it's the great circle of life. What was I about to say? I don't remember. Anyway, oh yeah, if you don't want to eat shit, and you still want to keep fighting the foodiness, keep on tuning in and Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica White. We'll see you. Oh, I'll be away next week. I'll be in Ohio at the Roots Conference at the Chef's Garden. Yes, me, I will be a moderator up there with famous people like Ted Allen and Leonard Lopate and Jose Andres and all sorts of fancy pants, special food people. I will be amongst them. So if you're in Ohio, I guess come on by. If not, I'll see you in two weeks because then the following week I have the wedding and it's all complicated, but I'll be back. All right. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on Heritage Radio